Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Isaiah chapter 7 with me this morning. Isaiah chapter 7. So growing up, I played a lot of sports. Um, In high school, I played basketball. Uh, That was my favorite sport to play. As a freshman, I didn't make the team. I didn't make the varsity team as a freshman, but in between freshman year and sophomore year, I hit a growth spurt. And I not only made varsity my sophomore year, but I was starting varsity my sophomore year. So me and Michael Jordan are a a lot alike in that way. So I was starting varsity my sophomore year, started my junior year and my senior year as well. I wasn't like awesome or anything, but, but I could jump. I could jump pretty well. Now that was three kids and a lot of pounds ago, so I can't jump as well anymore. But back then I could rebound really well and I could dunk. I could dunk pretty well. I mean, we're talking like two hand, touch the shoulder blades, tomahawk dunk. So uh, it's no big deal, but it's, it's a pretty big deal. So uh, so I could dunk, and listen, that's all I wanted to do. I didn't care about anything else. I just wanted to dunk. And so in practice, if we're doing a drill, I'm not laying it up. I'm going to throw it down. And so it was about a week before the playoffs started, my junior year, and my school came in, and they installed what are called breakaway rims. Now, breakaway rims are designed so that whenever you dunk on it, whenever you hang on the rim, it doesn't break the backboard. And so I was feeling pretty good because I was the only guy on my team that could dunk. And so I was, you know, getting a little big head about it going, hey, did you see they're installing breakaway rims for your boy? Because I was the only guy who could dunk. So I was feeling good about it. So it was about a week before playoffs started, like I said, and the matchups for playoffs were coming out. And it came out, we learned that who we were going to play in the first round of playoffs, the people who were coming to our gym was a team out of Oklahoma City called OCS, Oklahoma Christian Schools. And these guys were awesome. They they had just won the state championship the year before, and if we could kind of look into the future, we would see that they're gonna win four in a row. They're incredible. Um, And on that team was a guy named Blake Griffin. Now, Blake Griffin, if you're aware uh, of basketball, maybe you're not, let me tell you about him. Well, this is him jumping over a stinking Kia in the NBA dunk contest just a few years after I played him. So he, was, he went and played a couple years at the University of Oklahoma. He was the number one overall pick to the Los Angeles Clippers in 2009. The NBA Rookie of the Year won the slam dunk contest this year. And so he was coming to my gym to play me. And not only that, but there was two of them because his older brother is Taylor Griffin, and he was on the team as well, and he went and played for the Suns. Nobody even talks about him because his brother's so good. But they were both on the team. They were big, scary dudes. And OCS, what they would do before the game is they would do this, like, I don't know if you've seen football teams do the haka dance or whatever, where it's like this real intimidating thing. They didn't do that, but it was kind of their version of it where they would, about a minute before tip-off, they would all get on their side of the court, and they're just like, doing this drill where they're diving on the floor and screaming and yelling and like doing all these chants and stuff. It was extremely intimidating. And so my coach, he didn't want us to get scared. And so he makes us go to the locker room during this time so we don't see it, which is real cool. You know, we felt really tough. And so we're in the locker room so we don't get scared by this thing that they're doing. And we couldn't see it, 
but we could still hear it, right? And I think that might have been a little bit worse. And so we're sitting back there and we're trying to be tough, but man, we are all looking at each other just terrified knowing this is not gonna end well. And we came out and I'm telling you, it did not end well. It was a dunk fest, none by me, all by the Griffin brothers. And they were just swinging from our brand new rims. And they, our, our goals attached to the roof of our gym. And every time they would dunk, those goals would just go And I thought, this is it. This is how we die. The Griffin brothers are going to dunk so hard, they're going to tear the roof off of this place. And so it, it was just a, it was a beat down. I ended up scoring our team's first two points when we were down 30. And uh, our fans cheered, their fans cheered. It was, it was not good. And so, you know, we've all kind of experienced, maybe not that, but we've experienced these times where there's something big and scary, something that really gets our attention and just makes us scared, fills us with anxiety and different things. I mean, my goodness, right now we're in the midst of a global pandemic and all these different things are happening. And so there's, there's something probably that you walked in here with that's on your mind that you're worrying about in some way, whether it's COVID a worldwide pandemic and all these effects that it's having, whether it's the political year that we're in and just the, the polar um, tension that's going on. Maybe it's the racial tensions that are going on in our country. I mean, there's just a, there's a lot. There's a lot that we're dealing with right now, and that has personal effects on each of our lives. Maybe you're dealing with job loss, or maybe you're dealing with just fear and anxiety of the virus. Maybe all of this and the quarantining and things is just kind of put a microscope onto some marriage issues in your home. I don't know what it is, but we're all facing something, I guarantee it this morning, that we're nervous about, that we're anxious about. And so the question this morning out of our text, out of Isaiah chapter 7, is where do you and I put our trust in the midst of uncertainty? Where do we put our trust? And so let's look at Isaiah chapter 7, this morning, I'm going to start in verse 1. I want to set some context for us. I'm going to summarize some verses, and then we're going to really jump back in, in in verse 7 here in just a minute. But let's read Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1 together. It says, This took place during the reign of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Aram's king Rezin, and Israel's king Pekah, son of Ramaliah, went to fight against Jerusalem, but they were not able to conquer it. All right, so what, what's happening here is that there's a war on the horizon. And verse 1 kind of gives us a glimpse. It kind of tells us the whole story. And then we're going to get all the details as we, as we keep going. But a war was breaking out in 734 B.C. And there's a lot of players involved, a lot of countries, a lot of weird names. And I don't really want to try and say those because I'm bad at saying Bible names and, and things. So I'm going to summarize it for you. Essentially what you have is you have Assyria. And Assyria uh, no longer exists today, but at that time they were a world power and they were just going through and sweeping and trying to destroy and take over every little country, every little nation that they could. They were led by a guy named Tiglath-Pileser III. And I don't, I'm not really good with names, so I, I like to say, um, you know, King Tiger, or maybe you might say the Tiger King. All right, we're going to refer to him as Tiger King this morning. So you got Assyria and they're coming. They're the big that's the big threat. They're coming. So if you remember, in Israelite history, Solomon, his son, uh, 
Rehoboam, <laughs> sorry, Rehoboam, he split the kingdom. He was a bad king. The kingdom of Israel split into two. There's the southern half where Judah is, and then the northern half where you have Israel and Aram, okay? And what's happening is Assyria is coming. So the king of Aram and the king of Israel in the north are banding together. They've created this tie so that they could fight against Assyria, and they want Judah, and they want King Ahaz to join with them in this fight. Problem is, King Ahaz doesn't want to do that. And so the king of Aram and the king of Israel are going to come in and overthrow King Ahaz, put somebody they can control on that throne so that the three of those can fight against Assyria. Okay? Make sense? So that's kind of the context of what's happening. That's a little Israelite history. I just summarized verse 2 through 6 for you. So what we're going to do, we're going to break down this passage we're going to zoom in on Ahaz, and we're going to see how he responds, how he handles the situation. Think about how we might respond to the situation, and then we're going to zoom way out, and we're going to see how this passage applies to us. Okay, so in verses 2 through 6 of chapter 7, that's what we see. That we see that situation unfolding. The king of Israel and the king of Aram are coming for King Ahaz in Judah, and he is terrified. Just like the Griffin brothers were coming to Bethel Acres, Oklahoma, where I'm from, we were terrified, right? So I'm going to ask you a few questions this morning. I'm going to ask you three questions as we go through this passage. The first one is this. When things are difficult, what will you do? When things are difficult, what will you do? We see what Ahaz did in verse 2. He's shaking like a leaf. Check this out. The, the, the end of verse 2 says, The heart of Ahaz and the hearts of his people trembled like trees of a forest shaking in the wind. He's just, he's terrified. He's, he's shaking. See, he struggled with fear and anxiety. And really, I think that his anxiety stems from a lack of control. Aram and Israel were going to come in and overthrow him and put somebody else on his throne, and that terrified him that he wasn't going to be in control anymore. And, and I think this is where our anxiety comes from. So whenever we're not in control of our situation, whenever we don't know the outcome or how it's all going to play out, it it creates a sense of anxiety in us because we like to be in control. Statistics show that right now in 2020 with everything that's going on, every age demographic across the board is saying that they are experiencing heightened anxiety. Every single one. Children all the way to senior adults are saying, yeah, this time is stressful. I saw a stat this week that said, from the CDC that said one in four college students during this time, so college age people, 18 to 24-year-olds, have seriously contemplated suicide during this time. We have a control issue where we just feel like we need to be in control. It's creating all this anxiety, all these problems in our lives. There's so many questions that, that you're probably dealing with and I'm dealing with, things such as what, what happens if I lose my job? What happens if I have to figure out online school? What do we do with the kids if their daycare closes? Will I get the virus? Will someone I love and know get the virus? Or a million other questions could be running through your mind where it's just a sense of I'm not in control of this situation and I don't like it. And I think anxiety stems from this, this thing here. Whenever it begins, whenever we focus, that we lose our focus that God is on his throne, we begin to shift our eyes and our focus onto anything and everything but him. I think that's where anxiety comes from. And, with, and there's all these negative effects that, that begin to take root 
in our lives when we spiral down and the emotions and the actions in our life just begin to kind of get out of whack. We get short with people. We become mean. We become unpleasant to be around. It could lead to anxiety attacks or, or self-harm or, or maybe it's just that you just miss out on the goodness that God has for you. So when things get difficult, what will you do? One option is just to settle in and set in anxiety. Or we can do what Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says. It says, don't worry about anything. And we're like, that's easy for you to say, Paul. And he goes, yeah, I'm sitting in prison when I write this. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. He's saying, listen, the, the key to anxiety is prayer. And there's a peace of God that's going to come from that. We can't even understand it. I've heard a lot of people during this time say that, man, anxiety is, is through the roof. But I haven't, I've yet to hear anyone say, man, my prayer life has been strengthened during this time. We need to quit focusing on all the armies that surround us and put our focus back onto our king. And so, when things get difficult, what will you do? Secondly, when things are difficult, who will you trust? Who will you trust? See, Ahaz, he's scared, and God sends the prophet Isaiah to come talk to him. And, and let's look at what Isaiah says. So in verse 4 of chapter 7, God tells Isaiah, says, go to Ahaz and say to him this, would you just calm down and be quiet? Just calm down and be quiet. Don't be afraid or cowardly because of these two smoldering sticks. What he's talking about there is the king of Aram and the king of Israel are going to be burnt up. This is the prophecy saying they're not going to be a problem. They're going to be smoldering sticks. So don't even, don't even worry about them. And in 5 and 6, God goes on and he says, I, I know that they want to come and overthrow you, but look at the promise of God in verse 7. Verse 7 says, but this is what the Lord God says. It will not happen. It will not occur. God promises. They're not going to come in and overthrow you. I promise you. It's not going to happen. And then he tells Ahaz something to do in verse 9. Look at the end of verse 9. He says, if you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. So essentially, God sends Isaiah to confront King Ahaz and say, calm down. They're not going to get you. But here's what I'm really concerned about with you. Where is your trust. What is the source of your trust? And in this situation, Ahaz has two choices where he can put his trust. Two choices. He can either trust God or he can trust the tiger king in Assyria. Those are his two choices. So let's, let's look at those just so we can help him balance out the choice and, and make the right decision. So the first choice is he can trust God. The God of creation, the God who created everything, the God who told him, he promises Ahaz, he said, their plans are going to fail. And this is huge because God has never, not even one time, not come through on a promise. All throughout Scripture, anytime God promises something, it happens. He's never said, yeah, I changed my mind or that's really, uh, I, you know, it's not going to happen. He is a promise-making and a promise 
keeping God. So I don't know if you know this. I don't know if you need to be reminded of this, but there's never been a time where he has not come through. There's never been a time where he has not come through. There's never been a time where he lost. There's never been a time where he just gave up. He bats a thousand. Man, if he promises it, it's gonna happen. He's a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. So he can, so Ahaz has that choice. He can trust that. He can trust God, who never has once broken a promise, or he can team up and trust the tiger king in Assyria. This king who's this pagan, tyrant, man who is sweeping through and destroying anyone and everyone in his path. I mean, it seems like a clear choice, right? Seems like a clear choice, but if you go maybe this afternoon or something and you read Second Chronicles chapter 28, you're going to see the history, and you're going to see the choice that Ahaz made, and he chose to go with Assyria. He teams up with Assyria, and it does not end well for him, just like God said that it would in verse 9. So what we see is God, God says to Ahaz, says, here's what I want from you. I want faith, I want trust, and I want belief. And there's consequences if you don't choose me. See, in this passage, man, there's a lot of different nations involved. There's a lot of countries involved. There's a lot of kings mentioned. And I just want to tell you that God was not necessarily concerned with any of that in particular. He wanted Ahaz to trust him. That's what he was concerned with. Around this same time, 730 BC, there's another prophet. His name is Micah. And we have one of his books as well. And in chapter 6 of the book of Micah, Micah's writing to these people in Judah, to King Ahaz. And he says, what does the Lord require of you? Micah 6, 8, you know it. What does the Lord require of you? But to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's the kingdom that God is interested in building. He's not interested in all these nations and things. And I want to tell you that God is not interested in building nations. He's building his kingdom. He's building his kingdom, and that's the kind of kingdom that he's looking to build. You just flip through the pages of the Old Testament, all these countries and places. How many of them still exist today? That's not his, his concern. God is looking to build a kingdom of God followers who will stand and trust him over anything else. And so ultimately, every single one of us has this same choice to make. Who will you trust? Who will you trust? God or something else? It won't go well for you if you choose something else. So, in difficult situations, what do you do? Who will you trust? And then finally, number three, where is your hope? Where is your hope? See, God has made a promise, and now he's going to seal that promise with a sign. With a sign. This is something that God does. Anytime he makes a promise, he gives a, a sign. A sign is just a visual, a visual um, reminder of that promise. It's kind of like how kids will do like a pinky promise. Like, uh, you, you promise? Yeah, all right, twist my pinky. Um, it, it's that kind of a thing. God does it all throughout Scripture. So the, the promise he made to Noah that he never again destroy the earth. He gives a sign. It's the sign of the rainbow. The sign he made, or the promise, the covenant that he made with Abraham, the sign there is circumcision. And so we also see it in the New Testament, the, the sign of the new covenant, of Jesus' 
body and his blood being broken for us, the sacrifice that Jesus made, that it was accepted. The New Testament says that the, the sign of the new covenant is communion, the bread and the drink. Whenever we do that, it's a visual reminder for us to go, yeah, God has kept his promise and he's good. Right? So that's what we see. God is going to make, uh, he's made this promise, now he's going to give a sign. And let's look at that sign in, in, in verse 10 of chapter 7. It says that the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, and he said, Ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as the heaven. Now we need to understand that in the Hebrew, like these people, they understood Sheol to be the lowest point possible. It's the grave. And so whenever God says, ask for anything, I'm going to give you any sign that you want. Ask for anything. It can be as low as the grave or as the high as the heavens. Anything you want, Ahaz, I promise you, and this sign is going to be there as a reminder for you. Ask anything you want. And Ahaz says no. He says no. Look at verse 12. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. And so he comes across looking very pious and righteous, saying, I'm not, I'm not going to test the Lord. Let me, let me just tell you something. It's not testing God to do what he says. So when God says, ask for a sign, and Ahaz says no, he's, he's essentially gone against what God has told him to do. Ahaz probably has Deuteronomy 6, 16 in mind. It says, don't test the Lord your God. But he, I think he just knew enough scripture to be dangerous. And so there's this real sense here that this shows us that there are situations in which our outward piety and inward unbelief are identical. That it's extremely possible. We can look like we are holy and know the word, but we are unbelievers on the inside with no real trust for God. So Ahaz says, no thanks. But God gives him a sign anyway. God gives him a sign anyway, and it's partly for Ahaz, but it's, it's much more than that, which we'll see here in just a minute. Let's look at the sign, what it is, in verse 13. Isaiah said, listen, house of David, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, here's the sign, the Lord will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. You probably have some Bible light bulbs going off. Go, ah, I've heard that. That sounds like Christmas. We'll come back to that in a minute. Verse 15. By the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating curds and honey. For before the boy knows to reject what is bad and choose what is good, the land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. The Lord will bring on you, your people, and your father's house such a time as has never been seen since Ephraim separated from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So essentially, here's what's happening. I'm just going to summarize. This is a partial fulfillment of the prophecy that God gave to Ahaz. So a lot of times that happens. Anytime there's a prophecy, a lot of times there's a, a quick partial fulfillment, and then there's an ultimate fulfillment. So the, the partial would be this, that uh, Isaiah is saying that there's going to be a child born. And the word here that he uses said that there will be a virgin who has a child. The word virgin here literally means young woman of marriageable age. All right, he says there's going to be a baby born, and it's going to act as kind of like a timer. So think about whenever you're playing a board game and you got the little sand timer thing that you flip. That's essentially what this child is going to represent for Ahaz. He's saying there's going to be a child that's born, 
And by the time that child is two or three years old, where they can determine good and bad, those two armies in the north that you're worried about won't be around. That's what the sign is saying. And that's exactly what happens. You look at 2 Chronicles 28 or you look at 2 Kings chapter 16, you're going to see that that's exactly what happens. Ahaz partners with Assyria and it ends up being his downfall. So that's enough about Ahaz. Let's forget it about him. Now I want us to look at the ultimate fulfillment of the sign of Emmanuel. Remember that God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. So look with me again in chapter 7 at verse 13. It says, listen, house of David. It says house. This is an all-encompassing. You remember he's, he's promised that the Messiah would come from the house, the lineage of David. And so he says, listen, house of David. I'm speaking much more than just to Ahaz. And he backs that up in verse 14 and, and says it again whenever he says the Lord will give you a sign. The word you there in the Hebrew is the plural sense. So you and I would say this, the Lord will give y'all a sign. It's all y'all. The Lord is going to give all y'all a sign. And so then he speaks of the child in chapter 7. Then he starts speaking again. Isaiah does prophesying of the, of the child in chapter 9. Check this out. Chapter 9, verse 2. He's prophesying. Remember, he's, he's telling them what's going to happen in chapter 7, it says that the king of Assyria is going to come through and shave the land. That's exactly what happens. And Isaiah is saying, out of that, the people of God are going to live in darkness. Pick up with me in verse 2. The people walking in the darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. Skip down to verse 6. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Again, those Bible light bulbs are probably going off in your mind going, I've heard that. That sounds a whole lot like Christmas. What's happening here is, man, the people of God had walked in darkness and exile. Assyria comes through and just wrecks town. And then a couple hundred years after that, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon come through and, and destroy the temple and take all the people back to Babylon. They've been through darkness, and so they've, they've been beaten up, they've been defeated, they've been scared, and it seemed like all hope was lost. It seemed like God was quiet, that he was silent, that he had forgotten his promise. And for hundreds of years, the people of God waited for the prophecy that Isaiah spoke in chapter 7 and chapter 9 to come true. And then one morning from a stable in Bethlehem, the cry of an infant broke that silence where God has stepped in. And those Bible light bulbs went off in Matthew's head as well. In Matthew chapter 1, whenever he says in verse 22, it says, now all this took place. The virgin had a child and named him Emmanuel, God with us. It says, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So I want us to see this morning, as we worship in this room, this, this, this God that was speaking of a promise in 7th century B.C. will 700 years later fulfill it in Christ Jesus. And based upon that picture, as we sit here this morning, I want you to know that the God who gives promises in his word will always prove faithful to his word. Always. And so whenever we read and we, and we see things like, I will never leave you or forsake you. We can trust that promise. 
Whenever we see where he says, I will supply all of your needs according to the glorious riches of Christ Jesus, we can trust that promise. Whenever he says that neither death nor life nor angels or demons or past or present or future or anything above or below, anything on the created earth, nothing can separate you from the love of God. We can trust that promise. And whenever he says that, listen, there will be a day that's coming when I will wipe away every tear from your eyes. They're going to take you to a place where there is no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more sin, no more death. Where the old is gone and behold, the new has come. You can trust that promise. And you can bank your life for all of eternity on the promises of God. He's the creator and sustainer of your life, and he never fails. He is God, and he is with us. The way Matthew would close out his book. So he starts by saying, Jesus came, and he's Emmanuel, he's God with us. He closes it in chapter 28 with the Great Commission. If you remember the last line of the Great Commission, we, we know the front part, go and make disciples and all that. But the last line says, and I will be with you. Always, even to the very ends of the age. So Matthew is, is putting a book cap on, on both ends saying, God is with you in every stage of life. No matter what you go through, no matter if it's 2020, God is with you. So when things are difficult, where is your hope? I want you to look to the sign of Emmanuel. Look to Jesus, God with us. There's a lady named Corey Tenboom, and she was a Dutch watchmaker in the early 1900s in the Netherlands. And Cory Tenboom was a daddy's girl. She wanted to be just like her dad. He was a watchmaker, so she became a watchmaker. And around 1940, the World War II started, and the German armies invaded the Netherlands, and they were gathering up Jewish families, and they were taking them to concentration camps. Well, Corey Tenboom and her entire family were devout Christian people. And so what they did is they created this secret room in their house where they were hiding Jewish families. They were bringing them in. They were hiding them there. But the Nazi army, they found out about it and arrested the entire Tenboom family. Corey and her sister Betsy were sent to an all-women's concentration camp in North Germany. When Corey Tenboom was a little girl, her dad would tuck her in at night, just like... All of us dads do. You tuck in your kids. Her dad would tuck her in. He would lay his big hand on her face. They would talk. They would pray. And he would tuck her in at night. Years later, whenever she's in prison in the brutal concentration camp in North Germany, she writes about in her book about how she would pray. And she would ask God to lay his hand on her face and tuck her in. And she would write about how the peace of that, the peace of God's presence in that troubling time helped her fall asleep. In the midst of our trials, man, he is with us. He's with us. He's Emmanuel. Corey's sister, Betsy, she died in the concentration camp from an illness. But before she did, she said this. She said, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. Listen, man, I, I don't know what it is that's keeping you up at night. I don't know if it's COVID. I don't know if it's politics in the world. I don't know if it's some personal things going on in your family. But I know that God is with you. 
and he'll never leave you, and you can trust his promise. So, what will you do? Who will you trust? And where is your hope? Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.